0: Welcome to Probably Science, it's the first day of fall It's a beautiful Los Angeles Sunday afternoon here Is in... it really? I had no idea that it was... Well, maybe yesterday was It's I... usually the 21st, right? That? Oh yes, I hadn't even thought it through it's, uh, it's pl- That's the voice of Matt Kirsten seated to my right
1: Hello, and that was Andy Wood, introducing and being interrupted by me
0: just you know, we got to get this meteorolo- meteorological stuff down. I got to get the. Uh, I think it's important the for the, the listeners
1: all around the world to know exactly what the weather is <laughs> right. when we're recording it.
0: It is uh, noon Greenwich time now, uh, so you can reset your watches to this podcast. Uh this is a really special episode. Uh, I've been looking forward to this. We've been trying to coordinate this for over a month now,
1: and we've we've mentioned it and trailed it a, a couple of times.
0: So you had your you had plenty of time, listeners, to get yourselves up to speed on the uh, the guest we're going to have on today. If you didn't, that's your fault. Um, but it's the this is a sports episode, so uh, all the nerds uh, turn off your iPods because you're otherwise you're going to get slammed in a locker. You're going to get pantsed.
1: Uh, I'm going to be here, by the way, as a representative of the non sports playing community. <laughs> like it? Because we ha- we're going to have two guests on, we should probably get straight to our first guest. Because we're going to be skyping in uh, with David Epstein, the author of the Sports Gene, which we'll be mentioning a f- very vari- uh, various occasions throughout uh, previous podcasts. Um, but we have another sports playing
0: guest, a comedian, an athlete, a former ABC sports reporter, Paul Morrissey is with us.
2: Hey, it's good to be here, guys. I didn't know you were an ABC sports reporter as well. Yes, that ended very quickly. <laughs> I was a, uh, I was more like a, a SNL Weekend Update reporter. Did they um, want
0: you to be that? Or you just decided to take no, it in that direction? No, I just
2: decided to take it in my own hands. <laughs> they don't, they don't look kindly at uh, showing Yankee highlights if you're doing sports in Northern California. You know what I mean? <laughs> I basically wanted to do my my show, and uh, yeah. yeah, they they felt the opposite.
0: What was the what city in Northern California were you in?
2: Was in Chico, California. Chico, yeah. And I also spent some time in Redding, which yeah, that's where you go for sports.
0: Did that, is that <laughs> where you played college basketball?
2: No, I played. Uh, I played college basketball at Binghamton University, in, uh, which is in upstate New York. Right I know. It,
0: I went to college in upstate. Exactly. New York,
2: yeah. yeah, you're a Cornell guy. Yeah. And then I coached at Cortland State, which is right by
0: that, you as well. That's where our swim coach was from.
2: Okay. Yeah, so we're we're doing some upstate New York stuff. Upstate in the house. But my uh I I I don't like to think of myself as an athlete. I'm more of the 10,000 hours type of person. Okay. Like I I'm a basketball player. Like I I you see me. I'm short. I'm I'm kind of slow. Um, But I just played basketball for, like, my dad was a gym teacher. Uh So during study hall, during, uh, you know, Christmas, anytime, I I basically played basketball every day for about 10 years. So that's the only reason I ended up being a college basketball player and being successful at all.
1: Which is one of the things this book is
2: very much about, is how much is nature, how much
1: is nurture, and how much the 10,000 hours thing can turn, whether it could turn
2: anyone into an athlete or whether you need specific genetic yeah this is fascinating to me and also the other interesting thing is I always think about when you know at least time and place like like uh, LeBron James what would he have been playing if he was born 400 years ago like he wouldn't be playing basketball what would he be, you know, chariot racing, or what, what's yeah, the big, yeah. was he a star? You know, because so, even in the last couple of years, another guy who's from my hometown is John Jones, and uh, he's the uh, light heavyweight champ in UFC right now. He just won a big match last night. Uh-huh. And so he was literally a bouncer at the bar in my hometown. What? He, he was a wrestler. He was a junior college wrestler, and he just went to college for two years. But his two older brothers both play in the NFL. Uh all right, one's older and one younger. And they're both like just bigger than him. He's a little bit skinnier. Yeah. And and he literally learned how to do MMA in like two years and became the light heavyweight champ. So Jeez. stuff like that is like what would he have been doing like ten years ago even? Yeah. So,
0: Well, this book gets into that uh, a fair amount because that's that's kind of the reason that some smaller countries that don't have a huge talent pool to draw from can end up having these dominating teams in certain sports just because they've made it a priority. Like, talent transfer is a term for it. Just kind of picking people out and be like, you're the right body type for this. We're going to train you for this. Like, the Australian women's bobsled team was put together out of just, like, here's what we know to be the traits you need in bobsledders. And we're just going to pick a bunch of people who have zero experience in anything snow or ice related but have these traits... And the rest of the world was laughing at and them. They, you can't build and in the first or second Olympics that that team competed. Yeah, they they were,
1: they were sneered at by all the by all the rival coaches and like and they go, Oh, we'll help out the little guy. And then after the first like time trial training session, they are like, Oh, we won't be helping out these guys. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, what they did was they just had this nationwide search that they put out going, Well, we're we gonna do bobsled now. So um, any women who can run uh, I think it's even sp- shorter than 100 metres because it's, it's all about like the very quick burst sprint speed. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they just put out a call for these various attributes, m- yeah. most like sprinting speed uh, and a certain types of athleticism, which Australia is a very sporty country. It prioritises certain sports and it trains them very hard and very well. Right. And it turns out, yeah, you can, if you pick from the right gene pool, you can... You gets. can put
0: together a, a dream team of pretty much any sport, yeah, if you know what you're looking for. So basically, this
2: is kind of like, I mean, because Outliers was the first book that kind of at least made you think about, like, you know, even the, there was the one chapter about hockey in Canada, you know, like, right, right. like uh, all the all the NHL players were born like January to March or something like yeah. that because they're literally like a year advanced from the people that are born in November December. And like just that, by
0: that luck, that little like nine month advantage, yeah. they're, they're the best of that team, and then they get reinforced because their coaches see the ta- the quote unquote talent in them. That's yeah, just, year
2: you know, to year, they just get the preferential yeah. training, and then and then it's it's all those years together. Because you know, just think if you were a late bloomer or something like that, or yeah. or a guy. I mean, that's what happens in basketball all the time. I remember I was a TV when I was working in TV sports, I was covering the Sacramento Kings, and one of the guys they drafted was this guy Jerome James, uh-huh. and his dad wouldn't let him play. Uh, basketball when he was in college he went to like Florida Atlantic or some small school and uh, he he ended up being I think he was like six seven he ended up being seven feet tall by his junior year Yeah. so the coach is like you gotta play basketball so he literally got drafted in the NBA playing basketball for a year and they're like, what did you do before you played basketball? And he goes, well, I worked at Home Depot and Lowe's. <laughs> <laughs> he was the shelf guy. <laughs> he was the reach-up. But it's, yeah, literally those guys, I mean, in baseball, too, if you can throw over 90 miles an hour, if you're a guy who works, you know, in the kitchen, they'll, they'll will all right, we'll, we'll give you right. a tryout. Right. Because there's still... So, you know, seven footers and guys that throw that fast, and you know, football is kind of the one thing too, where it's like, oh, this guy is fast and uh, tall and really strong. There's all these kind of uh, you know abilities that they're like, all right, even if this guy's a fisherman, let's just pull him yeah, off. He's a got boat. the
0: raw build for it. Well, yeah, that's the thing is, like, the book gets into, and we'll get into this with David in a minute, but um, the ten thousand hour rule is sort of a misnomer or a misrepresentation of this original study. It's not always sufficient, and certain kinds of sports and in some lend cases themselves it's not necessary. Yeah. I mean, um, like, in some cases, you need some kind of, like, God given gift. Like, there was this uh, eye doctor who examined a Major League Baseball team, and the entire lineup had all the guys had, like, 28 or 2010 vision, which occurs in, like, one in 65,000 people. Like, this doctor had seen one person with eyes this good his entire career, and this entire team had it. Oh, wow. So, you need that kind of advantage. But then, in on some top sports, of that, but as then, well,
1: in that same chapter or that same bit of the book, it's talking about, again, with baseball. How much uh, nurture is involved, and how much training? And it specifically talks about um, something that happened. And I think we might have mentioned this on an earlier show when the the world's leading female softball pitcher was brought was brought along in a charity or an exhibition game to to pitch underarm softball pitches against top. Uh,
2: right, yeah, yeah, we read a little bit of that, yeah, and yeah, that they, was interesting. Couldn't,
1: they couldn't, they it. couldn't hit it, and it turns out, um, it turns out what you need to hit a baseball pitch is extreme training at getting used to where a ball is going to go from the watching the second that it leaves the hand
0: yeah from the uh, actual parts of the arm that you can see because they also did studies where yeah. like blinded you to certain parts of the arm and you couldn't hit
1: pitches they've done studies where yeah where they've where they've occluded um your vit, their vision after a uh, they've blocked out only certain parts of the body or they've put goggles on them that go black the second the ball is released yeah and the top players can still get that and they know where the ball's going to go, whether it 's going to go wide, whether it 's going to go straight at you what kind of what kind of pitch it is
2: yeah because uh, they 're tracking it like that's that's the interesting thing with uh i mean well there's two like like a knuckleball i don 't know if you know baseball like a knuckleball pitch is basically like a a trick pitch it's it's a pitch that doesn 't have any spin on it, so right. it almost kind of dances, but they only throw it like sixty miles an hour, which is almost half the speed or you know Forty miles an hour less than a regular fastball, and there's right. regular hitters that just can't hit it because it doesn't have the normal trajectory, like of that. like path of the ball that they're right. studying. You and know? in this case, it
1: again, it, this is from the book where it was talking about. It used to be believed that reaction time was key, and the best uh, bat, baseball batters had the best reaction time. Mm-hmm it turns out nearly everyone in the population has the same reaction time. Like, it's roughly identical. Right. It's about
0: 200 milliseconds, right? Yeah, reaction
1: time. Some people have slightly faster, like Muhammad Ali's one was apparently noticeably faster. Oh, yeah. But uh, most people's reaction time is the same. And also, the speed those baseballs are going
0: you don't actually have time to react yeah, to so no noticing
1: way. where the ball's going to go and then swinging it. They have to know before that happens. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Telling kids to keep your eye on the ball is a complete, that's, that's bullshit. That's well, just, that's, but uh, they, yeah.
1: yeah, you should be keeping your eye on the hand, but apparently even with top players where they then tell them keep the eye on the elbows and the, and yeah. the forearm, then they can't hit it. Yeah, there's yeah. no
0: advice you can give, basically. They you study just, the pitchers, yeah, because yeah, that's uh,
2: the Mar- Mariano Rivera. He's 43, I think now. Uh-huh. He's been the best closer in baseball for 20 years because he has this natural spin to the ball where it kind of tails at the end and you can't teach it he has no idea how he does it it, but people can't they can't follow it so and that's just one of those fluke things you can't teach someone how to do that it's just like a natural ability to do it so
0: well we're gonna have David Skype in just a minute before we do Paul do you want to talk to us for a second about how you went from being this uh King of all jocks uh, to, to the comedy world
2: Well that's the thing That's funny Is it's never been The king of all jocks I think it was just Well And and that's the Great thing about basketball Is being just a short White guy To go into You know A park Or a, bas- a basketball camp Or something you, You're always You know Even Venice Beach Will go down there And play And people, people won't think nothing. That you can't play And then It's just like White men can't jump So it's still fun To do that <laughs> Once Have in you a hustled while. Anybody at Venice We used to do, do you we still used keep to do Your money in your stuff. White gym socks <laughs> Uh, no I let somebody else handle the money because you really I'm not big enough to enforce that either but <laughs> but back in the old days yeah the, you know college days that's all I would do is just go from pickup game to pickup game and just you know play play you know I played against NBA players all the time I played against uh you know uh people in New York City and and all over the place so that was like one of the fun things it was basically my obsession before comedy and then as soon as I got out of shape I uh comedy was more of a <laughs> more of a more my speed so and if if i think we
1: we always ask i guess this we've got a brief second before david skypes in um do you what if what if anything is
2: your science background my science background is literally nothing like uh, i'm trying to think my brother is a he's a uh cancer surgeon like oh. he's literally like uh the cure for cancer and i am uh, I'm a comedian. So I have no <laughs> I actually I have a master's degree in uh, English education from NYU, which I oh, haven't wow. I haven't dusted off in a while. Did um, you start getting it. into
0: comedy when you were still studying that or wait?
2: Yeah, my master? my undergraduate my degree in Binghamton is in literature and rhetoric, which I think rhetoric even ties into comedy that's a little bit. It very much does. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. So uh, yeah, and then when I moved to New York I was, you know, teaching school and then and then uh, doing comedy at night and then uh, I just kind of abandoned that when i moved to la and started doing uh you know some tv shows out here and stuff so um so yeah i've left well we still play in the comedian basketball league that's the only who else is in that uh and i was just in a nike commercial with chris paul which i didn't get to play basketball with him Uh. but i just asked him questions so i think that comes out in like two weeks i think oh nice new uh the new cp3 sneaker awesome Um, I know Andy has no idea who Chris Paul
0: is. (laughs) See, yeah, that's,
1: uh... I love that you didn't even pretend to, like, throw that across to me. Like, (laughs) (laughs) like it was
2: already a given that I didn't know, but Andy
1: was the one who might have to front Uh, it out. I'm gonna
0: try to guess a team that Chris Paul plays for.
2: Matt's literally doing equations right now. That's how he (laughs) he gets ready for the science uh, podcast.
0: I'm definitely not Googling Chris Paul right now. That's oh,
2: he's the, the Clippers. You should know him. He's <laughs> Clippers, the, yes, of course. Yeah, yeah.
0: Clippers. Oh, yeah, Jesus. Well, it's There's
2: the Clippers. Blake Griffin and Chris Paul are two big Right guys. here
0: in town, of course. I do know Blake Griffin, yeah. If only for uh, slam dunking over a Kia. Isn't right, Kia yeah, yeah. Kia? I don't know why.
2: Yeah, that's what I said to Chris Paul during, because my, my thing was just to goof on him, like in post-game press conference. So yeah. I was like, I said, are you jealous that Blake Griffin gets to drive a Kia? <laughs> <laughs> Because I love that all those players do—you know Tiger Woods doing the Buick commercials. Like yeah. you've never oh, yeah. driven a Buick in your life.
0: It's like one of the years of Survivor that one of the pri- the prize is a million dollars and a Pontiac Aztec.
2: <laughs> Which that might have been the last one,
0: right? It was the last <laughs> one off the, after they would forced the execs to drive them. I punishment. wish
2: Breaking, yeah, Breaking Bad had the Aztec, too, right? That was the best
0: car casting for that. For that that show. was perfect. All right, I'm going to try to Skype in with David here. We're going to see if this works. We're joined by author of The Sports Gene and, uh, Sports Illustrated reporter, the, the man who broke the A-Rod steroid story. Uh, David Epstein is here with us. <laughs> hey,
3: thanks
1: for having me.
0: Thank you for joining us. We really appreciate it.
1: Uh, so Andy and I have both read the book over the, the last week or so. Um, and it's fascinating. It's fantastic. We, I highly recommend all our listeners, uh, go out and get this. Um, but yeah, there, we, there are quite a lot of questions that we have. We, it, it threw off a lot because a lot of the book is about, um, how much of sporting excellence is nature? How much is is nurture? Um, whether it's possible for any anyone to excel at any sport with enough effort, uh, or whether it's impossible for that to be the case. Uh,
0: well, I guess we should probably start things off by just asking what what drove you to even go down this road to to put this book together. G-
3: good question. And um, in a lot of ways, like almost every chapter, is some personal question that I had from either seeing something or my own sports career that I then just tried to answer, you know, take as far as I could toward answering with the available science, really starting with my own high school track career. So, I I grew up in a Evanston, Illinois, and there was kind of a mini Jamaican diaspora um, in the 70s and 80s. And so, we had all these Jamaican sprinters, and our team was really, really good. We won 24 straight uh, conference titles and some state titles. And you know, I, I when I learned that Jamaica was an island of two point seven million people, I started to wonder what the heck is going on over yeah, that's, pretty... there that's producing all these guys. You know, and, and then then I move up to being a little longer distance runner in college and now I'm running with Kenyan guys, you know. I have a race that takes less than two minutes, so I have a lot of downtime to, to meet people and learning that not only are these guys Kenyan, but they're from this one minority tribe, um, the Kalenjin. And and so those sorts of questions just you know, stuck in my head. That, along with what I write about in the book, the sudden death of one of my former training partners from a genetic disease, mm-hmm. and so really, I just sort of started in my own mind these these nature nurture and and other genetic questions. That when I had the opportunity to um, you know investigate as deeply as I could, I really jumped at the chance.
0: Yeah, and you did a great job. It's very thorough and very uh, for for a, t- for a subject that could probably go down some controversial uh, roads. It it doesn't really end up being anything that that would. I don't think, ruffle any feathers or has it in your in your experience so far? Well, you know, I've gotten some
3: unhappy letters, but they've been by far in the minority. And it's not totally clear to me that those people have necessarily read uh, the book. And I know Matthew Syed, the author of Bounce, which is um, a very strict sort of nurture only book in the UK, was not very happy with me when we were on the radio together. He said, like, you know, telling kids that talent exists and they won't learn algebra and all this stuff that is just totally outside the realm of it anything i wrote about but yeah
1: you're very good about actually not doing that in the book and 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 one of the things i I guess one of the conclusions is yeah if if you don't have certain genes you're not going to be you're not going to be at the world record holding 100 meter sprinter but then also even if you do have those genes you probably won't be because only one person is going to be that person Right, uh, right. I mean,
3: as as you get – the higher the level you get, right, the more those people with those genes are also putting other pieces together like the practice. So, um and yeah, yeah, you're at a significant disadvantage. If well, I,
2: and I also want to say, David, you definitely uh, chose your words a lot more carefully than uh, Jimmy the Greek. <laughs> <laughs>
3: you, you have no idea how many times – like me and him are like linked in some way kind of <laughs> because we, we've come up together in so many interviews. I've gotten the exact same question multiple times, which is – so, aren't you really just making the scientific argument of what Jimmy the Greek, you know, uh, the wow. Jimmy the Greek? And I said, I'm I'm not aware that he made a scientific.
2: Yeah, <laughs> there was no. Meanwhile, they did call him the Greek, so maybe he was a little mad about that. Yeah, um,
0: yeah. I think but, even even in that chapter on Jamaica, that maybe starts to go down that road. It, it like you do sort of posit that in addition to the fact that you get into how West Africans evolved to have this sickle cell trait that protects them against malaria and means they're going to have more fast twitch muscles because they need less oxygen if that's a, is that a good way to sum it up kind of that
3: that's a good yeah sort of that's as as good a quick summary as possible um but
0: then you know you go down the road of like yes jamaica was populated by maroon slaves who might have been like the best of the best but then at the same time the current culture of jamaica is so running heavy like the the big track meet of of high school teams is the is like the super bowl of jamaica so that culture of running is a big part of it also right
3: Yeah, it's always a both, you know, and frankly, I think that the more competitive sports have become, the more important both the requisite nature and the requisite nurture are because Uh there's so many more people competing and there's so many more people training hard. Where I think, you know, we, we focus more attention sort of on training regimen now. And I think that's great toward finding the best kinds of practice. At the same time, I think in, in generations past, Someone could have had an easier time of having only talent and sort of stepping into an event and dominating it, or or that's why you used to see people who dominated multiple sports or multiple distances of running that you never see now, right? Because now you have people who have both the talent, you know, and and good training. I I will say with you know with respect to the previous question though, I it did writing about race did almost scare me out of writing the book. I did put it aside briefly and thought about sort of packing it in.
1: Well, it's almost Um, it's almost impossible uh, if you're talking about the genetics of sports of athleticism to you you hit, you hit on actually two um extremely tricky topics because you talk about race and you also talk about gender both of which are intrinsically linked to sporting ability it's it's very much the case that in most events the male world records are quicker or further or faster than the female ones and also certain races dominate certain events and it would it yeah. was it would it would kind of be uh disingenuous not to cover that but you cover it with tact and you cover it rigorously and scientifically and without uh, an agenda.
3: Well, I, I appreciate you saying that because I really did. So, you know, for a couple of years while I was researching and writing this, I'm just sort of in my own vacuum, you know, right. unlike with magazine writing where you get feedback before too long. Um, and so, you know, after after a while, I would talk to some scientists and I read a book called Playing with the Boys that makes the argument that that really the only reason female athletes don't perform as well is all cultural. And, you know, some scientists would tell me, like, just see, look, you just don't want to write about this stuff, you know? And, and I actually had, when I decided actually that I couldn't put this project away was I was at the American College of Sports Medicine Conference annual meeting in San Francisco. And the head of a kinesiology department at a major research university told me that he was hiding data on ethnic differences.
1: He was doing a study
3: about the response of exercisers to a dietary supplement and had seen differences between his black and white subjects. And, and felt that if he published – this is a guy with tenure, right? So a lot more job security than I have. Um, right. And and said that he felt if he published this, it could somehow be construed as him supporting innate intellectual differences, even though the two have nothing to do with one another. Right. But at that point, I got I became frustrated with that and, and felt like I didn't want to hide the things that I was learning.
0: Yeah, it's crazy in your book you talk about the scientists who are choosing to study uh, sports and how little sports genetic research money is out there. There's just no budget for it. And I yeah. wonder do you think this book might change that, or is that your hope
3: i to- I really hope so i mean I-, I hope that, and I also hope that it might get more sort of young people and students
0: interested in sports and exercise
3: science because uh-huh. I think had i I got interested through my own as i as I moved up to be a longer distance runner or somewhat longer middle distance runner really, I got interested in my own training physiology and that was my exposure first exposure to sports and exercise science, and I got really you know and then when my training partner died, I got interested in sports cardiology and you know, I just got fired up about the subject, and I'm hoping that if, if more young students get fired up about sports and exercise science, eventually that leads to more people it's... wanting to study it, and that leads to more labs and to more funding. And it's funding
1: a wide eventually. open, it's a wide open subject for research. Um, but just totally for jumping back two seconds very quickly, because just before we leave that race, racer topic, there was one thing again that really hit home that I guess hadn't properly occurred to me, but was obviously the case. Uh, when you're talking about that idea that's, Black people being cert- better in certain, or certain black people being better in certain athletic disciplines, that being linked to inferior intelligence. That was a concept that was brought in as a result of racism. This counterbalance, oh, they're better at sports, so they're, they're dumber at learning. That was, that was added afterwards by the racists when it suddenly be- became apparent that they were better at the sports. Uh, yes. earlier it was thought the opposite. You know, that was like Hitler's master race idea was oh, these people are dominating sports and dominating intelligence. So they-
2: this is it- Matt Kershen saying this, by the way. Yeah. In case <laughs> all your listeners want to know.
1: But it was an inter- like, this is a this is a concept that was a construct of racism rather than rather than academia right. supporting a concept. Yeah,
3: yes, yes. And I'm really glad that 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 came through enough that you remembered it because I think that's a really important issue, right? Because there are people because of that, because of that stigma, right? So this idea that that intellectual and athletic prowess are on this biological teeter totter, which right. by the way is not supported by the data. In that the the groaning and talent study where I talk about soccer players who go on to be pro, that they actually found that they're able to transfer a lot of the skills they learn on the field in terms of focus and self discipline to the classroom and do better than their peers. Right. Um, but but yeah, that idea, you know, that that there was this biological teeter totter. It only. It, it only arose when athletic prowess became associated with uh, African Americans. You know, it was almost like this thing well, you know, like you said, Hitler was, well, our, our master race is superior in all endeavors. And then when they're not. Well, in that case, then being good at sports also means you're dumber. You know, it's just this kind of trying to flip, um, like, the morality around. And it's 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 disastrous. I think it's really important to recognize that that was a result of bigotry, not a right. cause of which it. Which is the
1: exact opposite of science, which is, right. like, the opposite exact. of science is changing, is fitting the evidence to your previous preconceived ideas rather right. than the other way around.
3: Ex- exactly. And, and, and to hear that it affects someone, like this head of a kinesiology department I was talking about, I'm, I firmly believe that the best way... Uh, you know, to get the optimal outcome for all people is to understand what differences between us are real and important, not to pretend as if none exist. So to me, that's really potentially harmful for the science.
2: Hey, David, Uh, this is Paul speaking. I, I wanted to just ask you, because uh, I-, I I played basketball in college, but I- I'm not an athlete. My dad was a coach. And basically, I'm more of the 10,000 hours school of I lived in the gym in order to be able to perform at that level. Yeah, our listeners can't can't see this, but <laughs> Paul is How tall not are you? I'm 5'9 white, kind of dumpy, a little slow. <laughs> <laughs> so so uh it was kind of a miracle that I was a, a, a an all-conference college basketball player. It was mostly just due to practice. Um So, and, and of course, you know, coming all the way through, there was these, you know, these weird shoes that you could wear to stretch out your Achilles and you did all these strange, uh, you know, training things to make you a better athlete. What did you find like, at least from your own training regiment as a runner, was there anything you could have done to make you uh, get to that elite level, or was did you take it as far as you could take it? You think?
3: No, I think I could have taken it a little farther. And That's interesting you mentioned. I, I had those shoes that stretch your Achilles <laughs> yeah, you have, like, popped up on your toes. Yeah. And that, those those might work for strengthening your calves, but your Achilles is just a function of the difference distance between your heel bone and the insertion point in your calf. So that's not going anywhere. Um, but you said but, in
0: some cases for like high jumpers that one one Achilles tendon does end up getting strengthened and becoming more of a, a spring that can launch them stiffer, right over an, yep. or just stiffer
3: yep you can make it stiffer not not longer okay um, so it just but,
0: it just makes it more it gives you back the energy that you put into it when you put weight on it as, as a more effective spring essentially when it becomes stiffer is that correct correct? Yeah.
3: correct exactly the best thing would be to have a, a spring that's both long and stiff um, but both of those are important independently as well Okay, length and stiffness
2: so yeah, um, what, what about your running? I want—I'm curious to find if there's anything. So you think you could have taken it a little bit further?
3: Yes, I do, and I, I think I, first of all, I think I—I um, I know that I wasted some time early on. Sort of, I was always a bit of a fast twitch guy. You know, like I had a good vertical jump. Um, you know, I was shifty. I, I put on muscle really quickly if I went to the weight room. Uh, Compared to other guys. Mm -hmm. And so when I moved up in distance, I started doing what I saw other distance runners doing, which was running 85 miles a week. um, And it just didn't work for me. And after about two years of it not working for me at all, I said – You know, this just isn't me. Maybe my physiology is just different than these guys. And I started doing about thirty to thirty-five miles a week of targeted intervals, which is really low mileage Mm -hmm. for a for a middle distance runner. And I got so much better at every distance, every distance, including cross country. Running thirty miles a week compared to eighty-five miles. Wow. And I think I I think I wasted some time trying to follow a training plan that I thought might not be right for me, but that I saw other successful people doing. And I, I and I think had I kept going, I, I would have kept improving. But the best, I, having done the physiological testing I've done now, I realized that I'm most similar to short track speed skaters. So I think that would have been my ideal sport. Speed skating wow. would have been, your right. <laughs> Interesting. Short track, short track speed skating. Yep, I'm physiologically similar to them in a lot of ways. And what I found, the, the 800 meters, which is where I was a national level competitor, um, I think would have been about the second best thing for me.
1: Okay, oh. that w- th- this again was something that was really, um, like, really took me with the book. Um, was not only a certain physiologies um, better suited to certain events. And that was fairly. I was about to say that was fairly obvious, but something that we mentioned on a previous episode of this show when we were in the middle of reading the book was th- this crazy belief back in the day that the most average uh, <laughs> the symmetrical... middle of the
0: bell curve would be the best athlete would be the, the Italian, best athlete for yeah.
1: for every sport. Um, which is obviously very clearly not the case nowadays when you see the massively different shapes that are competing right. in different events. But um but not only are different shapes of bodies better for different events, but different people respond to training in wildly different ways. And different people respond to different types of training in wildly different ways.
3: Yeah. That and that's sort of and and, and you know, that's sort of one of the themes in the book is that sort of trainability. And maybe I shouldn't have been surprised by this because it's sort of what medical genetics is ahead of exercise genetics in this regard, showing that for example because i have a different version of the gene involved in acetaminophen metabolism than you do my one tylenol is going to be more effective than yours you know you might need two to get the same effect mm-hmm. you might only need a half of one and it the exact same thing is showing up in exercise genetics at every turn that you can put two people on with no training history on an absolutely identical controlled in the lab training plan and and the disparity in how they improve can be tremendous. In fact, I barely touched on this in the book, but there's actually a small group of people that are showing up in studies with certain genes where they'll actually go in the wrong direction in certain health parameters when they exercise. And that that message hasn't been put out there too much because it's a small group of people, and you don't want a lot of people saying, "Well, maybe I just have the genes that aren't going to make exercise right, I'm not going to.
1: I'm not going to exercise myself <laughs> unfit. I'm not right, going to go right. to the gym if that's going to end up making me ill.
2: Hey, uh, Look, I, that's I, important. Oh, sorry. I had no, uh, one. Did you did you touch on this in the book? Because I'm the one guy who didn't read to the end. Is there like everyone always speaks about LeBron James being? Uh, a great athlete in all these other sports could he have played did you do any analysis or do you have any thoughts on like is there a sport that he would have been better at or besides basketball or is that like the ideal place for him
3: I mean, I'm definitely not gonna say that there's a sport LeBron James could be better at because I think he's functioning about as about as high a level as anyone ever functions in any yeah. sport. Um I really think he's he's a combination of what happens when you get the guy with the best athletic ability. I mean, I saw that picture, I freeze framed a couple of pictures of him taking an alley oop in the playoffs and he's gotta have at least a forty inch vertical. Yeah. Which is unheard of for a guy that size. Right, right. Um, you know, and, and that weight, tall, long arms. Uh, I think he's what you get when you have the best raw athlete who also has the best sports specific skills that he's developed you know, mm-hmm. and that's why we only see those guys really really rarely. do I think he could have been i mean he was he was an all state football player with like i just like we just walked on the field right, right. Like notes and so i do i think he could have been a stellar i mean y- you know a six eight his size can you imagine him matching up against cornerbacks who are like five foot eleven yeah, the that's end?
2: the only one I hear like you know tight end you know a six eight guy just that big and that's fast you know yeah. it's just you know people always talk of course football coaches always drool over somebody like that but but i mean even in baseball you know i don't know if they've ever measured it but i mean lebron james as great as he is as an athlete he's not an automatic guy that can throw 90 miles an hour that's like another another uh talent that you know i don't know if they've they've have you proven that that can be taught that throwing the the 95 mile an hour fastball or is that a a god given thing too.
3: No, and actually I spend a lot of time talking to people th- at the to orthopedic surgeons at the hospital for special surgery. They handle a lot of pro athletes um and they would say that they see sort of certain bone morphology and and um certain kind of joint uh anatomy in guys that can throw really hard where their shoulder um, rotates back farther than normal. Their tendons tend to be really tight. And of course, you know, like Tommy John surgery, you can go ahead and do that artificially as right, well. Right, right, yeah. And tighten those tendons. Um, but that there's definitely, uh, to, to my, nothing I could find in the scientific literature or sort of anecdotes from orthopedic surgeons, they never found anyone go, you know, who was past puberty throwing 40, learning how to throw 80. Right, right. Um,
0: right. Well, I, I was also interested in um, the fact that uh, uh, you have, Trainability in a sense, uh, with some people, who, like you said, are high responders to training, and some have a high baseline, um, I guess, fitness level, even if they're not currently working out. Yeah. Um, but you spent about half the book, I think, talking about sort of CGS sports, as you call them, the things that are measured mm-hmm. in centimeters, grams, and seconds. Those are like, you know, just running, jumping, how far can you throw this thing. But the mm-hmm. early parts are more about uh, sort of skill based things, like sports like baseball, where it's pattern recognition, like you have to train your eye to see the movement yeah. of the picture a certain way. Um and so do you think that like the ten thousand hour rule, does that apply more to those types of sports that I know and first of all I know the ten thousand rule you kind of debunk in the book. Um but those but those sports that are more uh CG the CGS sports are those ones that are less responsive to just hours put in than say those ones that are about training your brain to recognize patterns and things?
3: That's a good question. I, I I certainly tend to think that there are more people who in those CGS sports simply by things like body type or some very simple aspect of physiology are ruled out. Yeah. Um, than in some of those other sports. That said, the, uh, and actually this is, this is a point where Malcolm Gladwell sort of critiqued uh, my book in a, in a sort of friendly way, he said, well, I only meant the 10,000 hours rule to apply to more cognitively complex tasks. Mm-hmm. And he talks about chess because chess has a lot in common in terms of pattern recognition with, um, you know, baseball or even, uh, or, or really any attacking sport, which qualifies like hockey, basketball, anything where you have to, one of the signs of expertise is much more rapid recognition of what the arrangement of players means basically. Uh-huh. Um, and the fact is at least in chess, which is a cognitively complex skill, although it takes much long, It's true that it takes many more hours for anyone to reach a master level. Like nobody reaches it really, really quick. Uh That said, the individual differences go up, not down between people in reaching it. So it takes everyone a lot of time, but the individual differences become enormous. So there's still evidence of talent, except it's it, it the baseline amount of practice it needs to put in for anyone is, is much much higher i guess some and people actually, become grandmasters
1: at the age of 15 and some become grandmasters in their 30s and 40s
3: or more likely never right. um, yeah. but yeah. the uh i cut a little section of the book that talked about it because i was a little i i wanted to see a little more replication of this work but about a gene called bdnf that that Basically, is involved in an aspect of brain chemistry. Mm-hmm. And when people were tested in for driving simulated courses, people with a certain version of the gene that alters their brain chemistry did not store the memories of the course as well, and were far, far slower to learn that motor skill over time. Wow. Um, that said, I wanted to see some more replication of that work. Um, so, which is why I cut it from the book because I wasn't confident enough in it. So, right. I guess I'm confident enough to to, to say it now, but not uh, to have to have put it in the book. So, I think there's evidence that. There are extreme differences in, um, you know, how quickly people learn those, those motor skills and some of the physical hardware like visual acuity, which I talk about with respect to baseball, only really starts to matter a lot as the ball gets going much faster. Uh-huh. You know, it doesn't matter that much at the little league level. Right. It matters a lot at the major league level. Um, so I think there's always that sort of interaction with hardware and software. But everyone in those recognition skills, I, I didn't see anyone who failed, unlike with the aerobic capacity where some people failed to improve, mm-hmm. I didn't see any studies where where people totally failed to improve in those Pattern recognition. It's just the rates all. may change as
0: they put in more hours. Yeah. Yeah.
3: yeah I read the,
2: uh, the A Rod uh, in the beginning about facing Jenny Finch. And yeah. uh and it, I thought that statement was ironic. He said, "I won't let anybody embarrass me."
0: <laughs>
3: <laughs> I know, I know. There, there was a time before he was a punchline. I know it's hard to recall that, but, uh, well, yeah, I thought that was pretty funny.
2: Yeah, I'm a Yankee fan, and of course, you know, I've seen A. Rod not perform well under pressure and in in pressure situations. And so, is there any finding? that, that the steroids does help or, or, or does any, wh- what's your feeling on that in, as far as helping the skills in baseball?
3: I, I think it, I, I don't, and there's nothing I'm aware of that makes it help, um, like in a more pressure situation or anything like that. But, um, I absolutely, I know I've seen the argument a lot of times that it doesn't have anything to do with baseball skill, but my, my, Blanket answer to the contention that, well, a sport is skill-based, so steroids, which are just chemical analogs of testosterone, don't help, is that show me the sport where women perform as well or better than men, and that's the one where testosterone analogs don't help. Right, right, yeah. the sport where athletes never go to the gym. Because you're – I had a calculation around. I can't pull it off the the top of my head, but a small increase in bat speed made a huge impact in how far the ball travels. Mm -hmm. So I – you know, I don't think taking steroids makes you able to hit a ball, um, but if you have those skills already, I think the, you know, the that stronger you are, the better. And my, my colleague, John Wertheim, in his book, Scorecasting, has a chapter where he talks about uh, drug testing, basically, and incentives for drug testing. And in there, he, he, he has a database of all the major minor league drug tests, positive tests from a couple – from about a five-year span, and finds that minor leaguers who tested positive and were suspended – are seventy percent more likely than their peers to move up to the next level of baseball, even mm. if they were caught. Wow. Whereas an extra year of experience only increases their chance of moving up twenty percent.
0: So it's worth it's me- worth cheating because the chances <laughs> are it's going to help you.
3: Yeah, yeah, it's it's worth. So those guys are far more likely to move up, which suggests to me, sort of from an indirect data analysis standpoint, that they're getting a benefit. Right. Yeah.
0: And I just wanted to ask, like the the final chapter about that elite um, cross country skier who basically has naturally occurring in his body what some cyclists do when they blood dope. Is that correct? Sort of? He just has... That's
3: exactly correct, yeah. He
0: produces a high amount of... Is it hemoglobin?
3: Yeah, hemoglobin. Huge proportion of red blood cells and inside them lots of hemoglobin. Yeah.
0: Right. So then he effectively has all the benefits of someone who is cheating but because you can prove it was a mutation causing it He's allowed to compete. Like, does that make you sort of wonder, like, what's the point of all this? Like, why are we, you know, our sports even, if we're just gonna, if things are gonna be won by those people, truly have to put in the time. Um, but they have this genetic advantage where it's almost like they are cheating just yeah. by the nature of their physiology. How does that make you feel about, uh, <laughs> I don't know. Does that depress you or not? No, no, that's a great
3: question. I'm glad you brought that up because the the sort of the second article that Gladwell wrote about my book is, is on that exact point. I don't know if you've seen it, but that's no, I I have the argument. He may, he sort of talks about my book and the secret race by Dan Coyle, which is the book where Tyler Han- or by Tyler Hamilton and Dan Coyle, where they talk about all the the doping that the U.S. Postal Cycling Team did, mm-hmm. and he basically says. Well, given that genetics are unfair, like, what's the argument for not allowing people to dope? And if they feel like they're sort of leveling the playing field, my feeling though is, um, and I say this over and over in the book, sort of to me, sports is like the coolest stage for, you know, exploring human biological diversity. But, and I always thought that the core value sports are totally contrivances, right? And, and I, they're all they are is just like made up rules and then we add meaning to them. And I always thought that the core values come from standardizing. The rules, not standardizing the, the genes. Uh, uh, otherwise, I think we would just have identical twins race each other, and we would force everyone in the NBA <laughs> eight, five foot nine. You know, like we don't. We don't like allow some one guy to wear stilts or something because we think the other guy being six sixes is, is unfair. And then it would and, just and be like don't... a
1: casino where it's just like rolling fair dice across the table. Yeah. Yeah.
3: <laughs> yeah. So, but I don't know. There were that like Vonnegut story, Harrison Bergeron, where like if somebody's really smart, they like implant something in their brain that makes like a loud noise every time they have a good thought so they can be like everybody else. You know, they won't have too many good thoughts. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah. So I just, I just think that the core values of sports are, are with standardizing the rules, not the genes. So I don't, I was never under the impression that, um, you know that genetics were identical and that the sports were a totally level level playing field in that sense it doesn't bother me that they're not because like i said i think the coolest thing about sports is 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 and i say this in the epilogue is watching like the six four swimmer you know walk in next to his five foot nine countryman who runs the mile and both guys are wearing the same size pants and i think that's a really cool you know display of human physiology
1: right um you you even talk about uh, again in the book that um Even if the thousand mile sorry, the thousand hours or or variants of it do take an effect, there's a good chance your desire to do that is also in part genetic. Like certain people are more inclined to put in the hours of work or to be to be addicted to running, to be addicted to training than other people.
3: Yeah, that was a surprise that was probably the most surprising chapter for me to report because I knew because I keep up with sports physiology that there was a ton of work showing that um, you know, training, doing physical activity could alter our dopamine system, which is the brain system involved in our sense of pleasure and reward. You know, for anything, eating, sex, drugs, whatever. But I didn't know that scientists who study it know full well the reverse is true: that differences in our dopamine system actually affects our physical activity, and they can breed for that in animal models really easily. Um, and and that's not to say one thing that's bothered me a little bit about you know made me wonder if I should have changed my language a little is I've gotten a lot of interviews where people say. You know, they sort of laugh and say, well, so I can tell my wife I've got the couch potato gene and I don't have to go exercise. <laughs> no, that's not what it says. It's not your destiny. It just means you might have to work harder uh, to change your environment in a way that will be conducive to you training. For me, I know training groups, for example, was a huge uh, thing, you know, motivation for me to get training. So I, I I will say one thing just to add that that chapter also led to my favorite interview of the book with Pam Reed, the ultramarathon legend. God, um, she, she was, was
0: ridiculous. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> I couldn't she believe she like
3: way. reads the rodent studies and animal studies to try to figure out about herself. She's really curious about like why she's so addicted to running. And when she when I interviewed her, the, the day before I interviewed her, she had just finished the um, National Ironman Triathlon Championships here in New York. And she qualified for the world championships. The next day, she was at LaGuardia Airport, and her flight was delayed. Uh-huh. And she gets so uncomfortable, she has to, like, stay still for a long time. She stashed her bags in a corner and was running laps around the parking garage when I was in her. <laughs> the day after the Ironman triathlon. Oh, Amazing. That's, that's so obviously she's, an extreme example. <laughs>
1: but she just she's effectively just run, swam, and cycled further than I have in my entire life <laughs> in each of those
2: events.
3: Oh, yeah, that day, probably, keep... probably every day that week. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <But, laughs> I mean, she, she ran like, what was that, I can't remember, about 400 miles around to, like a one-mile loop in a park in Queens that isn't even very picturesque.
2: Oh. Uh, hey, uh, David, I had, uh, I had uh, Todd Marinovich on my uh, podcast uh, a couple weeks ago, and uh, he was the one guy, I think it was like literally a human – uh, experiment as far as like making a football player. Uh, his dad was one of the first strength and conditioning, uh, guys, right? Is that correct? And then basically kind of trained Todd since he was a kid. What's your feeling on that, uh, kind of a training or, or what did you find out
3: about that? I mean, I think, um, particularly in certain types of training. So the, I, I think you're asking partly about sort of that early specialization for kids. Exactly, a, yeah. If you basically just train your kid
2: from <laughs> the crib MTV, yeah. to like throw with both hands and, and run, you know, when they're four years old, run miles and that kind of stuff. Like how early or how, how does that affect it?
3: Yeah, so when I look through the specialization literature, there's some a lot of things that are unknown. There's some sports where early specialization clearly seems to help and gym, like gymnastics, women's gymnastics and golf. Um, For most other sports, the data suggests that either early specialization is unnecessary or sometimes even detrimental. Like for sprinting, it's clearly detrimental. There's this thing called the speed plateau where kids who train too hard and too specifically early on, they seem to get stuck in like a certain running rhythm that they can't get beyond. Oh, wow. Um, But kids who play
1: different sports and then transfer to sprinting in their teens.
3: Right. And so if – I don't know the – uh, and, and the path of elite athletes is usually early exposure. You want exposure before age 12, if possible. And that goes for chess and, and, and language learning and sports. And musical instruments. And musical instruments, that's right. And so the, the more typical pattern for elites is, uh, they will be exposed early, but they won't – they'll actually specialize later than their near elite peers. So in their mid or late teen years, like Steve Nash, you know, wanted to be a soccer player, didn't get his first basketball till he was 13 years old. Clearly wow. didn't hamper his skill development. But if – and I don't know the specifics of Todd's um sort of training, but it seems what works best is that that there's no reason not to train kids. You know, there was all this folklore about – It'll hurt them if they lift weights or they they uh, you know shouldn't be running long distance. and I've found nothing that's based on hard science that suggests that's really true that it'll hurt them in any way that That said, it seems like a certain diversity of skill experience um, tends to lead to the best athlete. So I wonder if Todd's uh you know experience in training was was a little more broad than what some kids are being forced into these days.
2: Yeah, and it's also the you know you see that in tennis. Uh, there's a lot of burnout, you know, when those kids yep. get started that young. You know, yeah, you, you
0: wonder if it's not something that was ever your choosing, you're probably going to rebel when you have the choice to, yeah, unless yeah. you love it. So,
3: and that's like what Tiger Woods, you know, he says he said over and over, like people say, you know, my dad forced me to play, but really it was always me forcing him to allow me to play. It's really the and Ellen Winner, this fantastic psychologist who studies gifted children, coined this phrase, rage to master. That she says she sees in in child prodigies, whether it's drawing or sports, is like people think their kids that that they can push their kids and make them like this. And she's been studying them for you know decades. Says no, no. These kids like demand a certain environment from their parents, and their parents like have to feed into it. And there's no evidence that a parent who says like I'm going to put my my art dreams or my golf dreams on you from the age of two. Will will produce good outcomes. That that al- it seems like it almost always leads to oh, burnout. So
1: it's almost cargo cult thinking in these parents, just going, "Well, Tiger Woods pra- played golf from the age of two, so if I force my kid to play golf, then he'll that's be Tiger Woods." Happen. But actually, no, you're just you're just doing the shape of what this guy did. That's not actually the reason behind it.
3: Yeah, and, and that's Tiger Woods seems to be the first person to say that. And I saw no evidence in any of the sports psychology literature that motivation is like transferable in that way, um, in, in a lasting way. You know, you can force a kid to do whatever you want, but um it it yeah, doesn't you can. Seem to last. <laughs> yeah.
0: But is that neurological uh drive that that uh being is it is it you're more responsive to dopamine or you produce more of it when you whatever causes uh that runner to want to go drop her bags and go do that is that genetically um is that heritable? Like could you pass that uh, predisposition to wanting to train, to getting off on training? Could that just be inherited?
3: It, it definitely – it can be bred for very easily in animals. Oh, so, so – yeah. I guess. the animal models cross over and, and it doesn't even take that many generations. Um, and so it, it certainly is heritable in all the animal models that have been studied. And one gene that's implicated in it, the one that also predisposes people to having ADHD, which is actually – and there's a number of surveys that suggest a higher level, higher prevalence of ADHD in elite athletes than in the normal population, oh. which is really what is ADHD? It's a drive to move around. Right. And then right. but because we don't want kids to move around, we give them a drug that changes their dopamine system and then they sit still, which might be great if you want them to sit still 10 hours a day, but maybe not so great if you also want them to like then go exercise. Yeah. Um, so,
2: And also OCD. I remember uh, there's that uh, Chris Jackson or Mahmoud Abdul Rauf. He had Tourette's yeah. and he also had like obsessive compulsive. So he had to like you know, shoot a certain amount of shots (laughs) and he he was an incredible player, but it was mostly, uh, you know, his
0: compulsion. He couldn't stop. Yeah. Yeah.
3: Yeah. I think isn't the goalie, doesn't the, the U S goalie have Tourette's also Tim Howard. Oh, I'm not sure. I think he also does. And I think he's talked about like how he thinks that that sort of helps him. He likes to, he like shifts his focus a lot or something like that. But, but yeah, yeah. Chris Jackson, I remember that, that actually there's a book called why Michael couldn't hit, by um, a neurologist named Harold Clowens, who I think has now passed away, but he talks about Mahmoud Abdul-Rauf and Tourette's and free throw shooting in that book. It's a really cool book. Yeah, yeah, because okay.
2: he's like the greatest, one of the best free throw shooters of all time. But he literally, like, he not only had to make the shot, he had to get the net to to set in a certain <laughs> certain way, so he would be in the gym like an extra hour just trying oh, to my get God. it. That's, and uh, yeah. and it's a certain amount of perfection that that helps you with, obviously. Right.
0: But, is, is, yeah. is I was wondering as I was reading that chapter about people that are, that do. Love to train because of that rush. Is there any correlation between those people and future drug abuse when they retire? Are they also susceptible to wanting to find that rush, however they can?
3: That that's a good question, and and I don't want to go too far beyond sort of what I know, but I did come across researchers and research that would talk about um, basically a trait that was usually called impulsivity, which was uh, you know sometimes suggested to be higher in certain athletes, especially in aggressive sports, um, and also. There's uh, some research that suggests that it's correlated to people who are much more likely to gamble and to take all sorts of kinds of risks. Uh-huh. Um, so I think potentially there is a link there, but m- my reading of the science was that there's still a lot a lot to be done to really know. Okay. I
1: guess it's hard to separate um, that compulsion and drug, later drug abuse in athletes and the fact that they have millions of dollars and suddenly <laughs> yeah. don't have a job anymore. Yeah.
3: And, and and the other thing, actually the one thing I will say that's interesting in that regard and, and with regard to the money is there's a researcher named John Coates who was a British like a stock trader and he, he decided to become a neurologist and he studies hormone levels in stock traders and finds that when men, he advocates for having more female stock traders because what he sees oh. in men is when they win, if they do well in the market, their testosterone goes up and they become increasingly risky the higher their testosterone goes. And okay. in athletes, there's a similar thing where athletes, if they play at home or if they're involved in aggressive interactions or if they win, and this is the same in animals. scene, there's something called a winner effect. If they win, their testosterone goes up and they're more likely to win again. And what Coates saw is as these guys started winning and winning, they started becoming really risky and needing these like fixes and a lot of them would turn to cocaine and, and I think there were a lot of prostitutes involved and when I read his work, um, and now there's been some popular writing about his work. It seemed to me there would be a lot of analogies to athletes who who win things and, prob- and we know athletes when they win, they see a testosterone spike, which makes you both more risky and more likely to do certain things that might not be for your well-being in the long term.
0: Yeah!
3: Wow! Hear that, Andy? Prostitutes are risky. <laughs>
0: Wait, what? <laughs> yeah. Oh man!
2: John
3: Cook, get out! He has a book too out recently, and it's really fascinating research. Uh,
2: I was gonna say, is there any link that that makes any uh, pro athletes want to to get into stand up comedy like myself <laughs> and Shaquille O'Neal and Meta World Peace just oh, played right. at the Improv? Oh. What is I this? I
3: yeah, I I think um probably they've done so well in rapping those guys. <laughs> Natural industry that they'll dominate next.
0: <laughs> oh, if only we can hope for uh and maybe like the the comedy equivalent of a uh, Shazam in the future. We, we well, should, that was supposed to be comedy We should I probably
3: Shazam had pretty good comedy
1: We should probably ask as a as a sports writer and and uh and athlete yourself and uh sports enthusiast, what is your favorite um Athlete produced musical hit.
2: <laughs> <laughs> My favorite
3: athlete produced musical hit? Oh gosh.
2: <sighs>
0: Obviously not it? counting the Super Bowl shuffle. Like that's a given. That's everyone's <laughs> right. favorite, but uh
3: this doesn't count, but have you heard that the rap song Ten Thousand Hours? I thought that one was uh, <laughs> no. above it. But oh oh yeah no the Super Bowl Shuffle for sure. But has has anybody actually had like a halfway decent one? Any of the athletes? Um, I'm, if so, I'm I'm not aware of it. I have it, and no I'm
0: idea. Not, I'm not. That's I, I would assume if there is, it's not in my wheelhouse. I got music.
2: a CD like during the '90s of like Jason Kidd rapping and Anthony Hardaway and a <laughs> bunch. Yeah, and and it got Whoa. buried. And it's, there's some diabolical that, British uh, soccer ones as well. Oh
3: yeah, oh, yeah. <laughs> there I is missed that one. I didn't know Jason Kidd. Huh. Okay. Yeah. <laughs>
2: People want to know what the kid did. I, I think I listened to it too much.
0: There was a song, of at least a whole. I think a whole album, that Hulk Hogan put out back in the day. There's a song that I heard on this mix of terrible songs called Beach Patrol. It's just Hulk detailing what happens when he walks down the beach. He had his radio set to a rap, rap station. It's very like rap, clap, clap, that kind of like rhyming That's scheme hilarious. from the 80s. I, yeah. I,
3: I did think that video that Shaq did for, I don't know what the name of the song was, but he, it's, I remember he says like, um, it's something about his father He's like taunting His biological father And he's Ooh. saying like Now Phil I guess who was His adoptive father Now Phil is my father Because my biological Didn't bother Oh yeah me. And yeah. he's like In the video He's like ripping up Checks that say like Ten bazillion <laughs> dollars to 10 my biological 000. father <laughs> <laughs> was-
0: Written out just to My biological father
3: He was with
2: the Fushnickens I remember uh, that That's right
0: I <laughs> forgot about that The Fush Shackfu And the <laughs> Fushnickens God Oh um, I'm trying to think There was so many questions I had that I wrote down here As I was reading Wait, I, I, I know you Can we you, I know jump around
1: i know andy partly wanted to ask you about um he ran uh for oh, no i swam at cornell sorry, around, rather around the, same time. the
0: same time you were running at columbia and there was a okay. there was a columbia swimmer um well first of all i should say i was kind of a late I, I got into swimming not until my freshman year in high school and um i guess i was trainable i was a sprinter um and i responded well to training although i was also i like the book because it also b- backs up It makes me not have to be a pussy because as a sprinter, we were the laughing stock of like everybody hates a sprinter on the swim team because we don't put in the yardage the distance guys do. But maybe we shouldn't be doing that because we're training for a different. Yeah. And I don't respond. I don't train very fast. I'm not a very fast guy in training. But when I'm rested at the end of the season, I would turn in great times, which kind of like my coach didn't love that because I think he thought that that meant I could be going faster. But it was just no, I I'd always do well at the end of the year. And like three of the four years I was in college, I had the team's fastest time in the 100 free, but my coach wouldn't take me to the conference meet because I wasn't doing as well throughout the year. But then when I'm tapered and shaved and things, I would do well. And my my final race of my swimming career was against a guy at Columbia who uh, I was just reading up on him recently to see if it was the case that he, he came from Michigan like I did, and then he suddenly came out of nowhere. I think he might have even walked on, and then his sophomore year had this crazy... Uh, I guess he adopted a new kind of training, and he broke every Columbia record, and he was the conference champion for a couple years. Uh, do you know Jared Doherty? Does that name ring a bell to you? Oh, I
3: definitely know that name, but I don't know him personally. Yeah, I think he would have I been a year or two ahead
0: of you at Columbia. But yeah, so my last race of my swimming career was a two-lane. Um, it was the finals of the 400 free relay, and because there are 10 teams in the conference and the an eight-lane pool, I was in the two-team heat up against Jared, the fastest guy in the conference. I turned in my fastest lifetime, 100-time, and I'm still a body length and a half behind this guy because he's so wow. he's gotten so elite, and it just happened during his college career somehow through just through just training. Uh, and I just want, if he must have been one of those high responders, maybe lower baseline people. And maybe sure. you
3: found the training that's right for him. You know, so you yeah. talked about. I mean, that that's frustrating to hear that your coach, you know, would. Would say that about you because that's like old school thinking, right? It's like what people told Usain Bolt, oh, he's not training that much. Boy, if he trained harder, he could be really good. And then he trained harder, and he was injured all the time. It's why we didn't hear from him for years between the time when he was the world junior national championship in Beijing, you know, where like people were like, well, what happened to him? He was so good when he was young. Then he got back to his what he's always felt is right for him, which is basically ditching training sometimes. Uh-huh. and he's been a lot healthier in a world beater since then and now nobody tells him what to do anymore.
2: yeah it's like alan iverson practice man it's practice
3: <laughs> <laughs> yeah so it's not to say that you shouldn't practice but the idea that like that sort of stigma by the long distance guys you know because I, I dealt with that same thing when i moved my mileage way down you know it's like yeah, oh, yeah. you're just not training no finding tr- train smarter find the training that that that's your inimitable genome you know and and, and i think it's a a problem, this old school idea that everyone has to go through the same weed out process. Cause as I write about in the book, when they do that in soccer, you end up weeding out some of the guys who are the fastest.
0: Right. Yeah. That makes and
1: sense. Do you, do you think we'll reach a time where potential athletes will be going through genetic testing to then work out the best type of training for them? What, what type of, whether they're best to do like short burst interval training or long marathon type training?
3: I think, I think some of that, although I think, um, I think, It'll always for genetics. It'll always only be for certain select traits because I think like what Jesper Anderson does, the Danish scientist who I write about um, in the book who does muscle biopsies. I mean, I think that can tell you, you know, you don't have to worry about finding all the genes that cause muscle fiber type proportions because you can just look directly at the muscle fiber type proportions. Right. So I think we're already in the high level seeing some of the physiological testing where I think the genes can come in handy is for some of the things like the response responsiveness to training and also those sort of injury and illness genes that I that I write about.
1: Right, like who has a heart that should be very carefully watched with certain types of training, for example.
3: Yeah, yeah, or the guys who have the gene that predisposes them to permanent brain damage if they play football or that, you know, to torn ACLs, cuz those are things that that are kind of hard to get at from any normal physiological measure, but if if you can tell a guy he's at increased risk, you know, maybe you can do what some exercise geneticists now call prehabilitation, which is like strengthening certain support muscles to reduce the chances of of a tear. Right.
1: But in most cases, and again, it it this should have been obvious, but it wasn't really until I read the book. The there are a few single genes that do have that do control certain specific traits that are very useful to have and very bad not to have if you want to do specific sports. But for the most part, there's a massive variety of genes that all play into this same thing in some complex. Right, sophisticated system. Uh So it, it's almost... It's going about it a far more complicated way to just look at the genetic pattern and go, oh, this is going to make him tall. Well, you could just put him up against a wall and use a tape measure. <laughs> and, uh,
3: exactly, exactly. That's why... And there are these... Com- I've been contacted by a lot of companies since the book came out who do genetic testing saying, like... Hey, you know, can we send you our product? You know, we'd be interested in your feedback. And I think they're sort of indirectly asking to like me just stick my name on something. Do you guys read like what I said about most of the genetic (laughs) testing in there? Right. It's like uh, Carl Foster, who uh, has that great quote in the book where he says, you know, right now, the best genetic test is take your kid to the park and have (laughs) them race the other kids. Like the most common gene test that is marketed to parents, it always includes this. ACTN3 gene which codes for a protein found in only in fast twitch muscle fibers and if you don't have at least one of the so-called right versions you know you're not going to be in the Olympic 100 meter final in Rio but that only rules out like 1 billion of 7 billion people on earth <laughs> so it's very non-specific so it's interesting for re- research purposes and for these nature nurture questions of are there genes for speed but it's totally useless for actually like tracking what your child should be doing
2: yeah and i'm always amazed as some of these uh, amazing athletes end up Finding out later that they have heart problems, like especially in basketball, like I think they found out Larry Bird had some kind of heart condition and Pistol Pete Maravich, they found out after he passed away, he had some kind of... Is, is
0: that how he died? I, I forgot.
2: Uh, yeah, Pistol Pete, uh, I think, did. Yeah. But but uh, yeah. And, and, you know, even Sam Bowie, if you watch that 30 for 30, he's he, basically they're saying that he's genetically... That he basically had this this break in his his uh, knee or something like some kind of
0: it was predisposed. Yeah, it was going to happen.
2: and basically happened so. three times in a two year period or something like that. I'm always amazed that that th- those guys kind of slipped through the cracks. I guess that wouldn't happen anymore.
3: Well, th- oh, I, it could it could still happen. I think especially because the, a lot of the most conspicuous. Uh, signs of certain heart disease are the same as conspicuous signs of what happens to athletes' hearts when they train. So, a lot of times, athletes' hearts are passed. They could have underlying disease, and it could be passed off as just a training adaptation. So, it's especially difficult for athletes. Right,
2: because especially the Celtics, because they had Reggie Lewis, who also died of a heart uh, condition. And then they just... Um uh, they had two guys that just had heart surgery last year, like open really? heart surgery, Jeff uh, Jeff Green and uh, I forget who the other guy was, but yeah, yeah.
3: so that's crazy. Yeah. David the Pistol or- Pete thing is crazy, though. I mean, Pistol Pete, like, he, he supposedly had no left coronary artery, which yeah. I've never even heard of, so I, that's kind of mysterious. And that's I mean, our,
2: our friend wrote that uh, book. Wayne Fetterman oh, yeah, wrote, wrote the, the authorized biography of Pistol Pete. Yeah, that was fascinating. And and he was, a like, again, as as the Brit and not sports savvy in this
1: tool, so Pistol Pete was a world-class basketball player. Basketball player yeah, yeah. He,
2: his dad was a coach, and he basically just played basketball every day for his whole life, and, and but retired very early,
0: And he's not as well known as some of the legends of basketball. Like, not as well known as he should be, probably. Yeah, yeah.
2: Because he ended up, you know, that was back when you could only, you couldn't get traded. You basically were stuck with the same team. So he was stuck with the New Orleans Jazz for his whole career, I think. Until he got, actually, he could have played with the Celtics and won a championship, but he retired, like, when he was 32 or something yeah. and like then he, Yeah, and then he died when he was, like, 40 or yeah, something. Yeah, yeah, oh. yeah, so yeah, sad.
0: Uh, David, what is, what's the name of that, that heart condition again? Because I had a friend of mine died in the same way as your friend did, and I guess it's a relatively common thing because people don't, in general, test for it, but uh, it's an yeah. enlarged heart predisposition, sort of, or what's the...
3: Yeah, it's, it's called hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, and that, that basically just means, um, like, enlargement of... Of the heart, you know, enlargement of the heart muscle, more or less. and So it usually goes by HCM, just by the initials. Most often, by far, most common cause of sudden death in athletes on the field. Actually, the most common cause of sudden natural death um, in all Americans, at least under 35, you know, oh, so if you take wow. away like things like car accidents and stuff like that. Right, but
1: then athletes, like you say, are particularly predisposed to it, firstly because of their height, the stresses they put on their heart, but also because everyone, if they train to a large extent, their heart
3: enlarges to the walls of the heart walls thicken yeah the the athletes aren't predisposed to having it so it's it's a genetic it's caused by genetic mutation but they're predisposed to being
1: triggered by their exercise correct
3: one in 500 people have it right but they are more at risk for two reasons one because vigorous exercise can trigger the lethal heart rhythm and two because normal adaptations from their training make it harder to pick up for someone who's not like a real world's expert
0: and if you have that in your family like there was someone you talked about who lost two two brothers to that and decided to have yeah. all of her children tested so she'd know maybe I shouldn't have my kids play sports and some of them did test positive for that and she had to basically say this we'd rather have you alive than have you be an elite athlete right
3: that's right she struggled with it obviously i mean you know because she had kids who they found what their family gene mutation was that was causing the disease and here she has kids who are showing no symptoms And suddenly they're getting restricted from things. They're getting implantable defibrillators. And so she really struggled with it, but ultimately decided, um, you know, that that was, that was the way to go. And I think particularly one of the biggest risk factors for having somebody in your family drop dead is that you've had somebody in your family drop dead before. So I think a very prudent choice on her, on her part. Yeah.
0: That reminds me. I forgot there was that YouTube video you referenced in the book of the soccer player who keeled over, yeah. would have died, then his amazing. defibrillator kicked in and he just sat right up again. It saved his life. Oh, wow. it amazing! It detected the. Yeah, you can watch this on YouTube. But we'll link to it on our on our Tumblr. Yeah. It's, it's a fascinating Van video. Blue.
3: Amazing. He's like he's dead on the field, and then his defibrillator fires, and his, he just jerks and sits back up. It's kind of Those oh, defibrillators amazing. are not. I'm sure he was recommended not to play. You know soccer at that level with the defibrillator because the the wires basically that go into the heart are not meant to withstand that, but he got lucky obviously,
0: yeah, oh That's, wow and he is, would, that would have been the moment yeah, that would have been the end of his life if he hadn't had, I
3: mean, is that there. what happened to Hank gathers or was that
2: more of like a medication uh uh thing? <laughs>
0: Gathers, it's interesting you ask that
3: because Gathers sort of became the poster child in some ways for HCM, except for he didn't actually have it. So it sort of became uh, okay. like a media gospel kind of thing, you know, where like somebody writes it and then somebody else writes it. But he actually had a different disease called myocarditis, which is the same one that Reggie Lewis had. Oh, okay. Um, also, you know, not a terribly, um, uncommon disease. Sometimes it's, um, caused by like an infection. Um, and so a little bit different cause, but, but.
2: Yeah. And he yeah. collapsed. I think, I think he collapsed at least once on the court before. Yep, and then struggle with the and this guy led the nation in like scoring and rebounding for Loyal Marymount it was oh, like yeah. the one year or two years that Loyal
3: Marymount was good yep. and he <laughs> he actually died on the court. Oh, uh, on, yeah. yeah, on the court on television. Yeah, yeah so it was that crazy. was crazy. I mean, Reggie Lewis, like he he went doctor shopping. You know, a doctor told him, "Look, you're at risk of death," and then he went to many, many more doctors and kept getting other opinions until somebody felt like he could play.
0: Ugh. All right,
3: um, you know, and and. I've been told that he didn't really want an implanted defibrillator because he sort of, you know, and this is just what I've been told, obviously we can't ask him, that that uh, he he felt like that was kind of a sign of disability. And, I mean, that that death was so preventable. Wow.
2: Yeah, and he collapsed. On, I remember, at least it's on YouTube now, that he collapsed a couple games before he ended up dying. Um, during, a, like, an NBA game, he just kind of, like, you can just see his legs kind of come out from under him. He just lands oh. and and... They said that he, you know, he got the wind knocked out of him or something, and then, and then it, I but think it was, it was his a, heart. yeah.
0: Is there any evidence yeah. that Len Bias's death was because of? Uh, I mean, obviously cocaine was the proximate cause, but like, w- w- did he have any sign of a uh, 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 heart problems or HDM? Do you know?
3: No, I, I don't know. I haven't investigated that case at all, except for I do know that um, that some cardiologists told me that. Cocaine use can put people more at risk of that disease myocarditis yeah um, but I don't know anything about lembias specific case oh, okay
1: uh, just moving thing because we we're, we're getting towards <laughs> the end of the interview, just moving things away from uh sort of more morbid topics uh who, who are um who are the people who respond in a negative way to exercise and training
3: yeah so there's for example there's one um i mean there's one gene called f f HL1, I think it is, or it's FLH1. I'd have to look it up to to know for sure. But for example, those people um, appear to, if they have a certain version of that gene, some of those people appear to become less sensitive to their own insulin when they exercise. So that means that while most people you know, they become much more sensitive to their own insulin, which makes them much less likely to be diabetic for about 48 hours after every time they exercise. Uh There might be a small proportion of people who might move in the opposite direction when they exercise, which would be really important to know for someone who's trying to exercise to stave off diabetes, right? And, And other parameters of heart health. Um, cholesterol, things like that. There are a small portion of people in studies like the Heritage Family Study, um the one that I talk about with regard to trainability, uh-huh. that would go in the wrong direction in those parameters. And they're just now sort of starting to find some of the genes involved in that, but but it, it shows up consistently. You know, it wasn't a fluke. Uh, and again, it's a small portion of people, but that to me is another reason why this is really important work to do so that you can tell those small proportion of people that maybe, you know whatever change in diet or medication or something like that is the answer for them because exercise isn't going to isn't going to get the result that they want
2: yeah is there any uh so so now are you having any kind of second second wave of like uh athletic inspiration now that you know everything about training you can make yourself a uh a world-class squash player or uh (laughs) is there any (laughs) is there any uh endeavors you're pursuing right now athletically or have you hung up the shoes
3: well i've been focused on trying to become a world class writer reporter <laughs> yeah. and, and i do take like a very training oriented perspective to that um trying to do things you know as soon as i finished the manuscript for this book i tried uh, i took like an online fiction writing class just thinking look i got to do something different i can't just keep doing what i've been doing or I'm, ah. I'm at a plateau you know it's like you can't go lift the same weight that you've lifted for the same number of times every day and expect to have physiological adaptation um but that that said i i'm decidedly a jogger now not a runner uh-huh. um but, but I definitely apply some of the things I learned to my own, my own exercise. I know, you know for a fact and I had – so I have some of the genes because uh, I had some of my genes tested and looked at by scientists from the Heritage Family Study that I have certain variants that um, will give me a quick drop in blood pressure when I do certain types of exercise and I have elevated blood pressure when I'm not exercising. So I know that I can get that result fairly quickly. So I'll I'll I, I check like there's a 24 hour right aid like across from my apartment. I can check my blood pressure. like I check it all the time when I'm walking home. <laughs> um, and uh, and so I know you know that that's for life. That's like what I'm gonna have to do. Um, so out of
0: out know, of fear gonna, of it getting too low or too high. Out of
3: fear of getting too yeah. high. I thought that was
2: perhaps. the old my my mother is a nurse, but she quit she quit smoking when she was 40, and she's run the New York City marathon every year since then. What? She's literally run it like 23 years. Something crazy like that, but that was her thing. She had high blood pressure, and she says because of the running, she doesn't need the medication. We always thought she was kind of yeah. crazy, but but other people
1: so, so, might have done like yeah. different. Someone with different physiology might have needed the medication. She does. Well, we
2: still don't know if she's full of crap or not. But um...
3: <laughs> I, I also I'll say, and and this isn't specific to me, but I just know that I benefit from interval training way uh, more than endurance training. So if I have, you know, I'm I'm much more likely to go like run a hard half mile or mile than even run like a five or eight, eight mile run. And, but I think, and I think that's because I've learned the kind of training that works for me. But also I think the most common mistake that like the average exerciser makes is sacrificing intensity for duration. Like there's so much, you know, there's science from, there's a great study from McMaster university in Canada that showed like, if you, if your interval, you can do 30 second intervals of stationary cycling as hard as you can. Then you take like a four minute rest or something and do it again four to six times you can do a total of like six minutes of all out cycling for the week and it equals like five hours of steady state wow really Um, and
1: is that for everyone or is that for specific body types
3: that that was just for that that wasn't that was the average of that study sample so I, I can't say beyond uh-huh. that but again I'm sure the individual differences i'm sure are are significant but that that was the average taken from that but you will not you won't get that runner's
0: high though david <laughs> you'll get it for those 30 <laughs> seconds i bet
3: yeah i i I don't know about i mean i tell you I've done a lot of running and i'm I, I always feel like I always see on runners world you know the runner's high like on the cover it'll be like how to run faster and feel better and I'm like run faster and longer, I feel crappier. You know, I'm, I feel a sense of accomplishment. <laughs> the, the runner's high is still a little bit of a mystery to me. I get the, the high when I would run my fastest time, you know, but that sort of euphoria, like I was usually like, you know, puking in a corner when that that was supposed to <laughs> happen. Yeah,
0: I did the same thing. I, I don't know how much that was nerves, but like uh, I remember my senior year trying to make the state cut for some race and having to swim the 50 free over and over again and throwing up in between each one. I yeah, don't know how that's... much of it was just that I'd push my body too far or just that I was nervous that I wouldn't make the cut. Or
2: Well, I think yeah. it's also the mindset of, you know, because my mother has that thing where she doesn't even listen to music. She just runs, and she can just run what? straight and, and just get into that zone, which I, I, I got to believe that Diana Nyad lady, I mean, to be able to do that for two straight yeah. days. I mean, that's just a freak of nature. He's yeah, 64.
3: That's, that's insane. Yeah. Very impressive. I,
1: I just... I, Again, before we go, just as the not the one completely non sporty person around in this conversation, (laughs) uh, without without genetic testing, like how would I, how would I know what type of training I would best respond to? Like what? How would I go about testing that as someone who's been to the gym maybe like once in the last six months?
3: Um, that's the yeah. Well, you'll need to go to the gym a little more than that. Got it. (laughs) Um, But the you know let's say okay people aren't going to do vo2 max tests and biopsies and genetic tests like i did of course because they shouldn't that would be stupid but um without that i do think everyone should pay a little bit of attention to kind of trial and error like usually there's some exercise fad or some cookie cutter plan that everyone goes on and you know one of the ways that people get themselves going is by by discipline by doing the same thing by becoming a creature of habit but uh-huh. i really think up front you know, barring any other kind of physiological testing, you should put some time into trial and error and figuring out sort of what, what works for you. Try some interval training, try some long distance, see, see what works for you. Measure something, you know, measure your blood pressure if that's the drop you're going for. If you've always been a guy who had a good vertical jump naturally and and were a good sprinter naturally, you probably have significant capacity to, to build muscle with just some, you know, intense but brief, uh, weight training but most people never even even try that like they're just jogging or they're just spinning or whatever it is so barring anything else at least take some time up front to do some trial and error you know once you have a very basic level of fitness so that you're not just like dying after running a block (laughs) Um, and 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 take that trial and error mindset to your own training because if you're not you're not even attempting to find the optimal training your biology
2: we're gonna get you. You're gonna be an Olympic ping pong player, yep. Matt. Yep. We're gonna train you <laughs> down by the pier. Transfer. That's
1: that's one of the like out of almost any sport, table tennis is one of the ones where you just look at the Olympic level and go, okay, they're not even playing the same game that I played when I did it. Like <laughs> like, it, like I I will run a hundred meters in double the time that the, the the world record is or whatever, but I'm still doing the same you're still thing. Still running. Yeah. But like when you see the Olympic table tennis, like the table's just this little. Incidental thing in the middle of this sports <laughs> hall that they're running around. It's it's ludicrous. I, I think
3: the I think the response time from a hit in in like Olympic table tennis is like two hundred and fifty or three hundred milliseconds, which is faster even than like a hundred mile per hour fastball. So they wow. really uh, have to have a ton of anticipatory skill. And it um, seems so like I,
1: in a serve, particularly, a huge amount of the skill is disguising what it is you're doing. Like they throw it up and they sort of yeah. they serve it under their arm, like hiding as much of the <laughs> exactly. movement as possible. <laughs> yeah. yeah.
0: Well, thank you so much for joining us, David. I guess the lesson, if we can give one, is uh, even though we all have genetic differences, there's almost nobody who should who doesn't benefit from exercise. You have no excuse not to go exercise.
3: Yeah. In in fact, in although there were people who didn't get better, for example, with respect to VO2 max when they exercise, there's nobody in any of the studies that is a non-responder to everything. Right. Like, ev- everybody would find, you know, they would improve in some category or other, even if it wasn't the one that was most linked to elite athletic performance. And the more different kinds of stimulus they tried, you know, and and of course, the more intensity they added, the more likely they were to have some responses, even if it wasn't as much as the next guy
1: and i guess the other lesson is uh, go out and buy the sports gene we just we yeah. read it and i was fascinated all the way through
0: great and there's so much that we didn't even get into that's fast fascin- it's so many things that we learned it's it's a great read and it's a fast read and yeah. it's
1: amazon and every and all bookshops and kindle and all the usual places you might buy but bo- you know how to buy a book i don't know yeah, why I know i'm how going I know through how this if you're listening to this if you've worked out how to listen to this show you know how to buy a book
3: yeah, but you don't even have to read it. Just buying it will make you a better athlete. Yeah, exactly.
0: <laughs> Put it under your pillow at night, and you'll just like absorb you just it. Absorb into it.
3: That's but you need to do that
1: for ten thousand hours.
0: That's the, that's the yeah. trick. ten thousand hours of
1: like <laughs> sleeping on that book, and you'll you'll become. I'd say probably a a country record holder, if not a world. If record If not a world holder. record. <laughs>
0: oh, by the way, not to go back into something, but this I forgot. I really wanted to ask you if you followed up with the golf guy who quit everything to get his ten thousand hours in, and if you think he's going to become a great golfer. Yeah, yeah. I actually just talked to him,
3: or, or I was just messaging with him recently, and he's—I think he's at about a six handicap or something like that. So he's six or five and a half. So he's gotten a lot better, and he's only just started using like a driver because he built his game from the ground up, and he has a PGA certified coach,
2: uh-huh.
3: um, you know, who told him to start building his game from the ground up. So he's doing great. He loves the—he loves the sport, and
2: so he really doesn't although, like his wife. Then,
3: <laughs> <laughs> although he—he he organized his sort of. You know, campaign around the 10,000 hours. But as he s- tells me in the book, he's like, well, really, I think you could master something in anywhere from seven to 40,000 hours. <laughs> right. of course, the seven to 40,000 hour rule is not going to fun.
2: Not as fun, but it doesn't run off the top. But the big thing fun. in golf is the pressure of, of being able to get that score during the, the qualifying round. So it that's, you know, there's guys that can shoot that score during any day. But once you're, you got the pressure on yeah. you, that's the whole other deal.
3: Yeah, yeah, that they call the yips, which is like the choking in in golf. It's related to that aspect of the book where I write about Sian Bylock, the psychologist who helps putters not choke by giving them tasks that occupy their prefrontal cortex, which is what makes you choke, you know, by singing in their head or counting backwards or whatever. Oh, wow. Pretty simple solutions.
2: Yeah, I'd be interested to
3: hear about that with free
2: throw shooting too because, you know, it is definitely a thing where people that are good at it are just good at it, but you can't recreate – but it, a game situation you know in practice yeah. Yeah, yeah but they move it's
1: work like the practice moves it from the conscious part of your brain to the to the subconscious part of your brain
3: Oh, exactly! Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's one of the hallmarks of expertise. And so then, to, when somebody tries to get you to choke, they're trying to bring it back into those higher conscious areas of your brain. Oh, so uh, you okay.
1: Mm. Like when you try and work out how to walk, and you can't remember suddenly which arm goes with which leg.
3: <laughs> 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 Something like that. Yeah. I was going to think of driving or riding a bike, but yeah, some sure, like sometimes
1: we forget walking. to walk. <laughs> Have you never done that? Like when you're just walking along, and you suddenly really focus. Like, how do I? Which arm goes with? <laughs> And then so, and then you and then you're walking in a really odd way.
0: <laughs> this might be a British thing. <laughs> this, uh... like,
2: this, yeah.
1: like that's ne- why ne- everyone never, in I'm walks Sure, like.
3: somebody else out there.
0: <laughs> yeah, sure
2: Remind us there. not to train you for the Olympic walking <laughs> event, right?
3: <laughs> you never know. It could
2: be revolutionary. That could be the Fosbury Flop of Olympic.
0: Walking. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> <laughs> the arm and leg at the same time walk.
1: I that. Uh, once again, David Epstein, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, it was uh, a pleasure. The
2: sports gene available everywhere. Go out,
0: buy it, read it. Follow him at David Epstein on Twitter. And yeah, that
2: was fascinating. Thanks, David. I'll read I'm the one that's going to read the rest of the book now because I'm
3: <laughs> I'm fascinated by this. All right, thanks. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank Fun you. conversation.
0: Yeah, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Good luck with your next book. I hope it's uh, a piece of fiction and we're going to love that too.
3: <laughs> all right. I, don't, I don't
0: hope it is i want to see what you do next is what i'm saying i'm sure you'll excel right. at it <laughs> thanks all right, all right take care david thanks
3: David. thank you hey,
0: cool well paul thanks for joining us as well thanks. and uh listeners can find you we're still recording if you want to give oh, a oh, yeah. listeners can find you on twitter at paul um, morrissey
2: at paul morrissey just paul has a com is the website nice. and i've got the alley Oop podcast as well we do some sports and some uh comedy
0: excellent at uh,
2: jim gaffigan and uh larry miller that's and, great and uh, kid from kid and play we'll go what? all over the place so um <laughs> a
0: pajama jammy jam up in there <laughs> yeah we'll get a little
2: bit of everybody so yeah th- that one's just alley but thank you guys so much for having me that yeah, was fascinating. Thanks, thanks and, here.
1: And, and as always like at the um any questions comments clarifications uh email us probably science at gmail.com or tweet us at probably science
0: and, uh, we do want to thank Hugh Randolph for sending us a donation. We really appreciate that. Um, you can go to probablyscience.com and click the donate button if you want to donate. And I don't know if we're allowed to, ma- I think we can mention this, that Hugh taught, uh, Humphrey, Humphrey yeah. Kerr.
1: it was a lovely, it was a lovely message. We got free risk guest on the show, Humphrey Kerr. And then we got a message from, uh, Hugh Randolph, who was his science teacher. Yeah at school and happened to
0: listen to the show before it wasn't like he came to it because of that he was already a listener so it was a very it it
1: was a lovely surprise and again as always I'm amazed when people send us money it's beautiful and thank you so much for helping to support the show and uh, send us uh, write nice comments on iTunes and that kind of thing that just that helps us for free
0: and go hit the gym probably scientists you can do it don't be afraid (laughs) (laughs) no one's gonna get out of the lab no one's gonna kick sand in your face anymore (laughs) All right, we will see you next week see ya